When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to another edition of Commons People, the HuffPost Politics Podcast. Can I say in that? Okay. <laughs> you can't. Um, lots to talk about this week. Let's get straight to it with um, Paul Ward, the executive editor of uh, politics here at Huffington Post. Um, there's been some movement, or maybe not actually, on Britain intervening overseas um, against ISIS in Syria. Before we get on to that, there was, of course, the tragedy of the uh, Russian aeroplane blowing up. Uh, we're not quite sure at the moment whether that was an explosive or not, but here's a clip of the Foreign Secretary, Philip Hammond, on Sky News this morning. ISIL uh, Sinai have claimed responsibility for uh, bringing down the, uh, the Russian aircraft. They, they did that um, uh, straight away after the crash. Um, uh, we've looked at the whole information picture, including that claim, but of course lots of other bits of information as well, and concluded that there is a significant possibility. I can't put it stronger than that. Of course, uh, as you said earlier, there will eventually be a conclusive uh, finding on this when the investigation is complete. The wreckage has all been collected. Yeah, and but, examined. It, but in the meantime, so you, take, you must, you must believe that that is a credible claim, or you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. We believe there's a significant possibility uh, that the aircraft could have been brought down by an explosive device. Um, OK, Paul, you heard there that he's taking it seriously. There might have been ISIS who's done this. What's the political ramifications of this? I think the main thing is that the government are determined that no British holidaymaker should be left unsafe. But there's a wider, bigger picture here, which is what do we do with ITIL in Iraq, ISIL in Syria and ISIL in Egypt? Don't forget, ISIL have all these little... Uh, offshoots, little affiliates, um, just as Al-Qaeda did. And in, in, in Egypt, the government is convinced it's got its own intelligence, British intelligence, which suggests that this plane was downed by ISIL. Now, Philip Hammond wouldn't have said all that if on the very day that David Cameron's got the Egyptian president in number 10 for lunch uh, without being pretty sure. So it's going to have pretty wide ramifications for our relationship with Egypt. But the bigger picture is, what do we do about this? generational struggle against Islamic State. This has already been discussed, wasn't it, before, before this happened? This, we saw in the Sunday papers a couple of days ago that the government were going to row back on war or they were never going to do it. I'm not quite sure what the well, decision was. There's a big problem about whether or not the government has enough numbers in the House of Commons, the parliamentary arithmetic, to win a vote to extend military action against Syria as well as Iraq. Now, at the moment, we're pretty clear. We've got the RAF doing airstrikes over Iraq. We're trying to fight them on the front line. Um, it's very difficult, of course, when the front line is uh, ignored by ISIL. They come and go over the border with Syria. And a lot of people in, in number 10 think, well, it's a nonsense. MOD think we should be taking strong military action. But they lack the numbers. And this all goes back to 2013, when Ed Miliband stood up and said, look, I just don't think you've got enough evidence to go to war again um, in Syria. And... What's happened since is that we've seen the government have a sort of diplomatic dance with a lot of Labour backbenchers, the Hawks, who would quite like to do it. Um, and that tries to paper over their own problems with the fact, simple fact that Russia 
is now involved in Syria. It makes it much harder for Britain to step up or even extend any military action in Syria. Graham Deminick, another political reporter at Huffington Post, one of the small, smarter ones. Um, you grabbed a chat. <laughs> Take that as a compliment. Yeah, you grabbed a chat this week with one of our favourite Tory backbenchers, Johnny Mercer, is always great to talk to. How did that go down? Yeah, Johnny Mercer, a good friend of the Huffington Post website. Um, yeah, Johnny Mercer is a Conservative MP uh, from the southwest of England. Um, he's an Afghanistan veteran and uh, made one of the most memorable maiden speeches um, when he was elected in, in May. Um, I had a quick chat to him about uh, Syria airstrikes uh, following the story to do with Cameron kind of rowing back from the idea of getting involved in, in bombing, Syria, uh, bombing Syria. And I kind of asked him the question that maybe quite a few of our readers will be asking, why does Britain need to get involved when America's already involved over there? Yeah, OK, so the case for, the case for action in, in Syria is very clear. What the coalition are asking for and what the government is asking for is a very small uplift in the technical capability um, of going after so-called Islamic State within Syria. At the moment we do that within Iraq and we get up to a dotted line that nobody else observes and we stop and we don't go over that into Syria. So what the government's asking for is extremely um, reasonable, it's, it's relatively small but it's extremely symbolic as well, um, standing shoulder to shoulder with our American allies, our fr- uh, the French um, and the Australians, um, and you know the signal it sets out that we are prepared to prosecute this operation. We've got the stomach for the fight. So, what have you said to your Conservative colleagues, perhaps who who, who take a different view about about airstrikes? I mean, that that seems to be at the heart of why the government has, yeah. has uh, kind of withdrawn here. Yeah, of course. Uh, what I say to them is, I, I try and get across to them that we're not talking about Dresden. We're not talking about um, significant numbers of bombs going into Syria, and it's not bombing on its own. It's part of a coercive and a collective campaign. Um, and all we are doing is providing a technical, tactical capability that the Americans have asked for, that they don't have, that will enable us to prosecute targets quicker and so bring about what we are trying to achieve with that mission, i.e. the space and time for some political process to take place within Syria. So it's all about getting that done quicker. And I, and I, I do say, you know, that there, there was this enormous outpouring of grief and humanity when we saw that little boy washed up on the beach in Turkey and, and you know and absolutely rightfully so but we, we then have to have the stomach for the fight and go to the root cause of what made that happen which is an unstable um, Syria and part of that whether we like it or not is going to be some sort of military action and we have to have the stomach for that fight. I just wanted to point out the extra element to this, of course, is Labour's own troubles Mm. with Jeremy Corbyn and defence, because during the week it wasn't just a question of Syria, it was a question of Iraq. And Jeremy Corbyn was asked about Syria and why this vote was being shelved, and Chris Shipp from ITV did a wonderful Columbo-style question. He was wearing a raincoat. Yeah, yeah, you're you're still too young maybe, Owen, but... Just one more thing. Just one more thing. And just one more thing from Chris Shipp was to Jeremy Corbyn, well, do you support the airstrikes that are presently going Mm. on in Iraq? And Jeremy Corbyn says, amazingly, well, I think we've got to think again. I think we'll look again at that. Now, that's caused a lot of upset with uh, Shadow Cabinet. They thought, God, we've got to settle position on Iraq. Syria is one thing, but Iraq, we know we're fighting these guys. It's really important to help out the Iraqi How government. How likely is uh, Labour going to actually change position in Iraq? This is Ned Simons, not a reporter. I've been sat in the corner quietly. <laughs> no, I thought I'd I did do in. a very good job at this recently. No, 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 I'm also bouncing on a giant bull, which is a bit weird. But anyway, how likely do you think it is that Labour actually change its position on... Well, as on with, Iraq itself. what's fascinating is that as with Trident, if the leader says something 
and, take, and makes clear that he's got a different opinion. And maybe the party members who voted him in huge numbers share his opinion on what we're doing in Iraq, then maybe there could be a shift in policy. Everything's off the table these days. Uh, I mean, sort of nothing's on the, off the table these days. I mean, it's all up for grabs, Labour policy. So it doesn't matter, in a way, what the shadow cabinet think, if he can get the numbers behind him to say, hold on, what we're doing in Iraq actually doesn't make sense. How many Labour rifts do we have now, do you think? I think we've kind of got tax credits, we've got Trident, we've got Syria, tax we've got... Uh, no, sorry, tax credits, you're right, you're right, I think. Some credit. <laughs> so we've got the um, Oldham by-election coming up in a matter of uh, weeks, and we've got um, Owen, Owen Bennett uh, presenting the show, who's our resident kind of UKIP expert, who um, there'll be some developments very shortly on this story, won't there? Well, tonight we're going to see uh, Labour, tonight being Bonfire Night, November the 5th, we're going to see Labour selecting their candidate, which uh, Paul will fool you in on shortly, but UKIP selected theirs earlier this week. Now, this seat is next to the seat that last year UKIP came within 600 votes of winning from Labour at by-election. If they'd have won that, if UKIP had got over the line, then Ed Miliband could very well have been ousted as leader, as Dan Jarvis told us at the yeah. post-event at Labour conference. So UKIP obviously feel like they've got a good ground operation in this seat already, They've picked John Bickley, who is yep. the man who fought that by-election last year for UKIP, to be their candidate this time. And you're already seeing the tactics. Bickley loves Britain. Britain <laughs> yeah. is brilliant, says Bickley. It's Another, Bickley. It's Bickley, Why? it's Britain. Why wasn't it Paul Nuttall, uh, deputy, deputy leader, a northern, northerner, big name? It's a very good question. I think it's probably because Bickley already has the ground operation there. There's a lot of bleeding. You know, constituency boundaries, as we know, don't just stop at a road. So people will know his name. He's got a backstory. He's got a link to the area as he always goes on about. The tactic that UKIP are really going to play is this. They're going to knock on the door and say to voters, Labour's leader doesn't sing the national anthem. Ours yeah. does and we love Britain. Will you vote for us? And that is going to play really well. And you're seeing that already from UKIP. They've already talked about how Jeremy Corbyn wants to give the Fortnite Islands back to Argentina, apparently. How we'll talk to the IRA, apparently. All that kind of stuff. That is going to be the tactic UKIP are going to use to try and win this seat. 40,000 majority, it's going to be difficult. And that's why who Labour picks is so important tonight. If they pick Jim McMahon, and he is the local favourite, he's a local council leader, he's 35, many people think he's a real rising star. Uh, and he was supposed to be going for the Mayor of Manchester job, but this is in his backyard, this has come up. He never wanted to be an MP, but this has come up now. And it's a great story, isn't it? I never wanted to be an MP, no, but I'll look, no, no. where I live, then I actually, for once, believe him. But this has come right. up in his own very own backyard. Now, he would be interesting as a Labour candidate because he is not a Corbynista right. on defence. He's got a long-running uh, veterans campaign locally. He's got a big project for Remembrance Sunday. More importantly, next month, he's even going to Buckingham Palace to pick up his OBE you for services to the community. You can't get more royalist than that. <laughs> so if Jim McMahon wins, Labour can say, look, these UKIP attacks are ridiculous. But if Jim McMahon doesn't win, if Chris Williamson wins, who's the hot left-wing favourite and good old-fashioned Corbynista, friend of Jeremy's, former, he, MP. former MP in Derby North, he lost it by 41 votes at the last election. We talked to him this week. He was absolutely clear. He's got a clear Corbyn agenda. He thinks might appeal to working-class voters in that seat. It's going to be a key test. The key thing, that is, if he does get it, um, is that on Monday he was actually in a private meeting with Jeremy Corbyn on the same day that the shortlist was whittled down. So that might cause even more eruptions within the party. Uh, the question, I suppose, is if Jeremy Corbyn, if he loses the seat, or if he comes within 500 votes of losing the seat, what does that mean? A win's a win, I win in a by-election. It doesn't matter how close. <laughs> right, okay. And, too, and it's too soon know. to start for them to do anything about Corbyn now, isn't it? The yeah. parliamentary party. It doesn't matter. If, if, they, if they win it, there'll be a massive sigh of relief. Just get over the line. I think the other thing is, 
to ask myself that question about Farage. <laughs> yeah. so we don't even need to be here. None of you lot have bothered to pick up. What does it mean for Farage if UKIP don't win? It doesn't mean anything because he can say it was a 40,000 majority, it was going to be tough. However, if they don't get anywhere near it, I think questions will start to be asked about Farage. This is the man, of course, who unresigned. We know all this kind of stuff. If it seems like UKIP are going backwards in the northwest, which is where they're supposed to make these big inroads, and they don't get anywhere near Labour, I think you'll start to see a lot of questions about Nigel Farage. Is he spending too much time in the e-referendum? Is he reverting too much of a south-east party? Are we seeing the UKIP tide sort of swim back a little bit here? So I think there's actually a lot of pressure on Farage in this election, more, probably, probably more than Corbyn, actually. It's now time for this week's quiz in honour of the by-election in Oldham. Don't look at my screen, Greg, Sorry. to get the answers. <laughs> this week is about uh, famous events that have occurred in Oldham. Uh, in Oldham? Yeah. Right, okay. And, is it uh, a long quiz, is it? It's be over quickly. And it's whether or not there's, uh, where there's blue plaques. There's blue plaques in Oldham to various things, okay? This quiz... My, my, you can't see this, on, but my mouth is open. My yeah. jaw has hit the ground. <laughs> Uh, this quiz, you have to decide whether these uh, these blue plaques are in Oldham or whether they're not. And the quiz is called Oldham Blue or Just Not True. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Okay, we'll go with this. Okay, so. I really don't want to go with this. <laughs> First, Yates' Wine Lodge. Yates in. Is there a blue plaque to the first Yates' Wine Lodge in Oldham? Yeah. So, so it's Oldham or. What is it, what's the option? Oldham or. Oldham Blue or Just Not True? Olden uh, Blue, that, that's true. Olden Blue, I'm going to say. It's true. Uh, 1884, the first Yates Wine Lodge opened in the High Street in Oldham. To be very proud. Is there a blue plaque to Nick Grimshaw, the no. Radio 1 breakfast host? That's not true. That's not true. You think that's not true? Yeah. It's too easy, you're right, it's not true. But he was born in Oldham in 1984. Okay. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> is it Olden Blue or just not true that there is a blue plaque to Thomas Crapper? Who invented? Well, who is Thomas Crapper? Thomas Crapper was a man. He didn't invent the toilet. He, he, along, he used it. Credi- yeah, he is credited with making it more okay. widely used. The Steve, what Steve Jobs of of, sure. uh, of, <laughs> of doing of, a job of doing a jobs. Unbelievable. Anyway, old and blue, or just not true. <laughs> uh, I think this is old and blue. Yeah, me too. I think that's true. <laughs> it is. It is just not true. There is a blue plaque, but it's in London, in Bromley. So David Bowie's in Bromley as well, just to... It's funny you should mention Bowie. Terry Hall, ventriloquist and creator of Lenny the Lion. Is that old and blue or just not true? Well, no, that's not true because I know where Terry Hall's from. I think, anyway. Um, oh, I oh, know he's a different person. It's different Terry Hall. Terry Hall the specialist. I am, no, yeah. This is a ventriloquist. Old and, oh, this is true, I think this one. Uh, yeah, true. Olden it, is, it is true. He is credited as being one of the first ventriloquists to use a non-human puppet. David Bowie's father launched the Lenny the Lion fan club. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. And finally, uh, John Lees, the originator of fish and chips. Is that old and blue or just not true? Just not true. Our, just not our true. older audience will be loving this quiz, by the way. Yeah. What do you think? Just Everyone not true? Else? Uh, not true. It is true. There is a blue plaque in Market Hall on Albion Street in Oldham to John Leeds, who originated the fish and chips. So there we are. That was uh, Oldham Blue or Just Not True. <laughs> Patent pending. Um, yeah, so thanks for that. Uh, we're now going to talk with uh, Tom Tamlin, who uh, is the tech editor of Huffington Post UK, to talk about the Snoopers Charter. And Ned kicked off with a burning question, which has obviously been on his mind for a while. What I want to know is, is 
can the Home Secretary look at my porn history? Boom! Oh, okay. wow. That's, uh, just... Oh, that's a hell of a... We jumped in at the. Like, we we answer the that. I want to. Oh, you actually want an answer? No, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. No, I have some bad news, which is that yes, she can, and she's been looking at it for quite some time. Just, just uh, Ned's. Just Ned's. No, no, yours as well. Mine. I haven't got yeah. one. So that's oh, that's fine. Yeah. Um, just delete so, the history doesn't count. Anyway. Anyway. New snoopers charter. Yeah, snoopers charter. Tell us, uh, what it means and what. It means the problem is here is that the problem. No, sorry. Yeah, the problem is that it doesn't actually mean so what it just makes things more expansive and it makes things more accountable so it isn't actually reeling back anything at all in any sense just i think a lot of people were hoping that when it was announced it would reel back some of the the bulk collection the the looking at your online um user history that kind of thing but actually it just continues what gchq has been doing for years anyway it actually just makes it more legal. So is, is it the case, and they were doing it already, and now it's just they said explicitly, we are doing this? What she, yeah, what Theresa May has done is she's gone... Um, she, she announced it just as she dropped the, the bill. She, announced, she, unveiled, she revealed that GCHQ had been collecting secretly data for 15 years. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, on everyone's user histories, um, which is something that... Well, they've, they've, they've kept that? Yeah, they've... Oh, no, no, you can keep it for one year. So GCHQ right, okay. keeps it for one year. Um, so they've been doing that already. And the only reason they were able to do that was because they only needed her to sign it off. So whilst it sounds like she's been unveiled, like she's just revealed something very illegal, actually, it's been legal for years. People who would say, you know, if you've got nothing to hide, what have you got to fear? I mean, what's the argument against that case? Well, they want for that case. I mean, the, so the problem here is not that you have nothing to hide so my, I often kind of posture this argument when people complain about it and I just go, well, look, you're not a criminal, so you don't need to worry about it. The problem is that it's more about the security of your data um, in relation to talk talk and things like that. Right. Because what this bill now does is it, but it essentially legally requires companies like talk talk, Virgin Media, to keep these histories of, of your activities for up to a year. So the government doesn't have to. And then not secure themselves. Yeah, and that's the problem. We've just had TalkTalk Talk being hacked by what seems to be a 15-year-old kid. Um, now when you're telling TalkTalk Talk that not only do they have to keep all your, you know, your credit card and your information and stuff like that, the government is now saying, I need you to keep this person's user history for their entire year so we can just drop in and grab it whenever we feel like it. I mean, that's going to lead... I mean, you're going to think that's going to lead to blackmail, right? It's going to lead to someone to hacking in on a politician, someone prominent, finding out something they've done in their personal life and then saying, look, we've got this information. I mean, that, that I guess, is, is the fear, right? If someone's doing anything I, illegal, then they might be doing something immoral or something they don't want the, the, the wider world to know. Yeah, and I think that's, that is one of the biggest risks. And the problem with this new bill is that it puts in place measures that ultimately we should already expect to have been in place anyway, which is that it puts the double lock system in, which I... I mean, that will be heavily debated, which is that not only does Theresa May now have to sign it, but an independent judicial commissioner has to sign off every warrant as well. I mean, essentially, I, the only thing I can see that doing is just making this whole process even longer rather than making it more secure. The second thing is that they've put in a, an up to two-year prison penalty for members within the security services who abuse this system. So what they've done is they've tried to make it... So they want less instances of people just going in willy-nilly, grabbing information and not really thinking about the consequences. 
the whole problem with that is they're not the risk. It's the hackers and the criminals that are the risk. Yeah. So as you say, like the, the worry, which already is that the government is just grabbing information whenever it feels like it, is actually quite small compared to the worry that now hackers have just been given this huge database of information which the government has told internet service providers to keep hold of for an entire year. Um, that to me is quite concerning because there's, no, there, there's then no legal requirement for the, the companies to then prove how secure their data is. Right. It's just within their own, within the law anyway. Well, I'm, I'm completely secure. not reassured. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. Yeah. That was uh, Tom Tamblyn there. <laughs> Never coming in again. That was Tom Tamblyn there talking about the Snoopers Charter, which leads us nicely onto Graham's Stat of the Week. Have we got uh, a jingle Go on. Graham's Stat of the Week. That, that jingles that have to that have music. That's a jingle. So anyway, the Stat of the Week is uh, GCHQ has collected 1.1 trillion web browsing sessions. That's the equivalent of 155 per person on the planet. Now that seems a lot. <laughs> you read but it with such authority. You one, know it. Re Do you I'll know repeat what that. Those words mean? Yeah. Well, uh, let me put my reading glasses on to, oh. to read that properly. One point one trillion web, web browsing sessions were collected by GCHQ. Right. I mean, that's a big number. Yeah. But you could have put another couple of zeros on there, and I would have been just as impressed or unimpressed. Or confused. It's just a big. It's a big number, isn't it? Well, yeah. There we go. That was Graham's stat of the week. <laughs> He's doing it down already. He is doing it down. Anyway, we're going to go back to Graham now because Graham was um, Graham was at PMQs this week. Let's not dwell on it too much because otherwise. What's the point? But anyway, PMQs, talk us through it, Graham. Yeah, so PMQs, uh, Jeremy Corbyn once more went with tax credits as his main front of attack. Um, he asked six, six questions last week on tax credits, another three this week, um, principally because um, it was, it's, it, it's, it's where the, the, the government's vulnerable. And here's a clip of uh, Corbyn uh, telling the Tories that them laughing at the issue of tax credits isn't very funny. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, this isn't about entertainment. This is about... This, this is not funny for people who are desperately worried about what's going to happen next April. Well, that was Jeremy Corbyn at PMQ's laying down the law to them booing Tories. Um, let's move on now. We, every week we do something, we interview a new uh, backbencher, and we do, it's called 1515, 15, 15 backbenchers from each party's 2015 intake. Last week we had James Cleverly, which is what I thought was quite a good quote. He was. That, that people on the left should fuck off. Then he went and did something on BBC where he admitted watching porn, yeah. smoking marijuana. He laid the groundwork. So I feel like <laughs> I kind of missed the opportunity with that yeah, interview. Yeah, outscooped. But Graham, you have interviewed uh, one of the SNPers this week. I have. Uh, Kirsty Blackman, SNP MP uh, for Aberdeen. Give us uh, the 1515 quote of the week. Uh, this is what Kirsty Blackman told me. Uh, I am 29. I'm, that's honest. But I love to crochet. So God knows what you'll say on PNR. <laughs> no, exactly. So, yeah. if John, if you're listening. Um, yeah. So, thanks for that. Uh, we're now going to talk... Well, earlier on today, we caught up with um, Lucy Sheriff, who is the Young Voices, Voices editor at Huffington Post UK, to talk about the student protest in London. Uh, Ned ticked it off. Roll the clip. So, Lucy, what was that about? Well, it was actually about several different issues, uh, which is quite unusual, because usually... They just focus around uh, free education. But this week it was protesting around the removal of maintenance grants. 
um, which made George Osborne very unpopular. Uh, it was also... <laughs> made him <laughs> unpopular. <laughs> yes, well, yeah, With students exactly. at least. Um, it was around free education again, uh, a fairer student loan system, um, and there was actually quite a big focus on the treatment of international students. What was that? In what way? What, what's international students? So they, um, the rules on their visas have changed quite dramatically. Um, they now can no longer work in the UK after they have graduated, so they have to go back and then apply for a different visa. Um, so international students feel like they're being very unfairly treated. So this is part of Theresa May's thing, isn't it? Theresa May yes. trying to clamp, trying to hit her this ridiculous yeah. immigration target of £100,000 yes. net migration. So they're, they're seeing students, overseas students, uh, getting rid of them, getting out of the country is one way of bringing that down. Yeah. Well, what's um, the atmosphere like on the march? I mean, there's lots of different kind of issues. In London, we should say in, this march. Sorry. Yeah, in central mm-hmm. London. Yeah, so it was, at the beginning, it was pretty peaceful. Um, there was there was a big emphasis on it on it being a peaceful march, um, but you know as sometimes happens there were a few um, lone rangers who sort of uh, started some, some do you, trouble. Do you think the um, I mean how much chance are they going to get to change these things they don't like? I mean do they recognise do they, they think we can we can really change something with this march or is it more just uh, we're unhappy with this we want to show that we're unhappy? I think it's a bit of both. I mean obviously ideally they would love to change change all these things but I think as especially the 2010 protest showed mm. which was massive and it was far bigger than this one you know obviously it turned quite violent but um, that didn't even change anything so I, I think you know it's important that they show they're unhappy but I unfortunately don't know how much it will um, actually What was change. the target of their kind of anger because I guess the last five years was the Lib Dems usually wasn't it they were the kind of lightning rod of of all the kind of anti-student yeah. protests given the tuition fees you turned by Clay. What, what about now? Like, is there a main hate figure? So it was, it was the Tories in general. Um, their, their main argument was that the Tories are waging a war on young people and the working classes. So that was, that was one of their sort of big taglines of the protest. One of the things I want to ask about um, is you said that it's a few bad apples who ruin it for everyone and then we, the media, we focus more on two people being mm. arrested and 5,000 people, say, protesting peacefully. Mm. Do you think the organisers of the march, marches do enough to try and clamp down on that kind of thing? Do you think they wind up the rhetoric a little bit too much and should take some responsibility or do you think that it generally is nothing they can do? I, to be honest, I don't really think there's much you can do. If someone comes along to join, you know, a three to 5,000 person protest, you can't just pick them out in the middle and say, right, you go home. I think it's very, very difficult to monitor who does and doesn't join the protest. And obviously they want to get, you know, feelings going and, and passion going. So they, they want to kind of rouse the crowds. But um, yeah, it's very difficult to kind of control who they, what they do. Thanks very much. That was Lucy, our Young Voices editor. Uh, we have been HuffPost Politics team. It's all over for another week. Uh, so yeah, so uh, say goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.